I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, worry and anxiety are common problems for most of us, especially during the pandemic. But according to one psychiatrist and researcher, they're also a bad habit we can learn to control. And I had this light bulb moment. I was thinking, oh, can we address anxiety in the same way that I've been approaching other habits? Because we've done work with smoking, got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We did work with eating, help people reduce craving-related eating. So we knew how to help people change habits. And then, the latest research in neuroscience. Could electric brain stimulation rewire our brains to help with conditions like Alzheimer's? We know that our brains have an incredible ability to rewire themselves, to to change over time. So we nudge the brain using these electrical currents to let go of its usual state of being. Controlling anxiety and tapping into the electrical brain. All ahead on Life Examined. Let's be honest. The last 12 months for many of us have been filled with some level of worry and anxiety. I mean, stress from lockdown, working from home, fear of losing work, finances, caring for children or the elderly. With so many unknowns, it's almost impossible not to feel anxious. For some, it's manageable. But for others, it's debilitating. In fact, millions and millions of Americans suffer from more severe anxiety disorders. This is something that Dr. Judd Brewer has been closely studying. He's a psychiatrist and neuroscientist at Brown University. And instead of immediately pushing drugs on clients, he's been researching different techniques for treatment. And it begins by reframing anxiety as a habit or even an addiction. And like other addictive behaviors, it comes with all sorts of familiar unhealthy patterns, from stress eating and procrastination to hours scrolling social media. He's just written a new book on this called Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. Well, Dr. Judd Brewer, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks for having me. Well, let's jump into this idea of the anxious brain and the science behind it. How did we get to the point where we are now where it seems that everybody I talk to, and even personally, is dealing with some level of anxiety or panic or worry? How did we get to where we are? Yes. You know, and even in the last year, we've seen anxiety levels spike. So it's been an unfortunately a natural experiment (laughs) in anxiety. I think it's helpful to start at the very beginning, which is kind of how our brains have evolved to help us survive. And I'll keep this brief, but I think it's a helpful background piece. So we can think of this as our brains have two main functions, which is to eat and not be eaten, right? Mm -hmm. To find food, remember where the food is, to find danger and not go back there, you know, to avoid the danger. So that's our survival brain. On top of that, more recently was layered what's called the neocortex, literally the new brain. And it helps us survive in a different way, which is through thinking and planning. And in order to plan, we need information. And ideally, we need precedent. You know, oh, I've done that before. I can I can project that into the future. So we can think of our stomach rumbling as saying, hey, I need calories and that urging us to go get food. Mm. We can think of our brain rumbling when there's a lack of information where it says, hey, go get information and that's food for our brain. So think of that as old brain, food, new brain, information. Both of them help us survive in in complementary ways. So how does that lead to anxiety? Well, that movement to get information (laughs) in modern day, when we don't have accurate information, that leads to anxiety. For example, 
in our ancient ancestors, you know, they didn't they didn't have to contend with fake news. You know, they saw saber tooth tiger, and they weren't like, "Is that a deep fake? Is that really? Is that somebody?" <laughs> sure. And you know, and there were no blogs arguing the the pros and cons of of uh, saber tooth tigers. You know, it's like you just you just ran, <laughs> exactly. and that's what helped you survive. So in modern day, there's a lot more information. So not only do we have to sift through all of it, but not only is it uh, there's a lot, but it's not all accurate. And a lot of it has a certain slant where somebody's wanting us to take their viewpoint. So that's a lot for all of us to suddenly not only be able to sift through a ton of information, which we can't do, it's like drinking through the fire hose, and then also have to become the expert in every subject that we're trying to uh, identify, whether it's, you know, whether it's politics or health, you know, we all have to become immunologists and epidemiologists, or even if we're just ordering a pillow online <laughs> it's like right. oh well i have to be the expert in pillows no just buy the freaking pillow it's right. probably you're probably going to be okay mm. so so there's this whole idea of like too much information is not necessarily a good thing that's really interesting i mean it's as if the brain is trying to make predictions for safety or for knowing for all these things which is just impossible in the world we live in as you said in this glut of information of data surrounding us Yes, it's, I would say it's nearly impossible. I think if we learn how our minds work and learn how our brains work, then we can start to put those filters on so that we can uh, get the information we need, we can digest it, and we cannot freak out in the process. Because when our brain goes into overload and it says, what if this, what if that, what if this, what if that, that's when that the brain that's trying to predict the future spins out into anxiety. And ironically, anxiety makes our thinking and planning brain go offline. So we can't, it can't actually do what it's, what it's supposed to do, which is to help us survive. That's so interesting. I think of studies of, of children, right? The children that show up to school anxious and how it would actually just paralyze their brains for learning. Or that, mm -hmm. that's an extreme case. Or I think of doing interviews every week, how sometimes I get nervous and think, oh, but I'm getting up for the interview. I got to get ready. But really, when we're breathing, when we're calm, there is a much, much easier flow of information, which is something I'm sure you've studied or seen. Yes. In fact, my lab did a study recently on this where we looked at a bunch of different mental states mm -hmm. and we had people do two things. One is to tell us whether they, were, they felt more closed or contracted or more open and expanded. And then we had them rank them how, on how high of a reward hierarchy they are, basically which, which ones they would prefer. So you tell me, anxiety, does it feel closed and contracted or does it feel open and expanded? Nah, well, the first, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's what we found in the study of several hundred people. What this also highlights in terms of learning is a concept that Carol Dweck put forward decades ago about fixed versus growth mindset. Basically, when we're in fixed mindset, we're closed down, we're not open to new information. When we're in growth mindset, we're literally open and we can look around and we can learn. Mm. This is something I, we know that has plagued, I'm sure, uh, great thinkers, athletes, uh, you name it across the board f forever, for as long as we know, right? Yes, it has. You know, And if you look at anxiety, performance anxiety in particular, you know, this whole idea of in they have names for it in different in different um, sports, you know, so that what do they call it in golf? The yips. I don't golf, mm, but I think that's what right, it's called, where right, right. people start to worry that they might, um, you know, screw up on their putt. And then they, they, you know, they get these involuntary movements, all of this learned. 
uh, you know, the choking is the other thing uh, in, in a lot of sports where somebody chokes when, the, you know, it's the final shot at the buzzer or the, the free throw that's going to win the game or whatever it is. This is so common. And we also see the opposite end of the spectrum where people, athletes talk about flow when they're totally exactly. in flow. They're so open that they've actually lost a sense of where they end and where the rest of the world begins. Yeah. You're trained in psychiatry, and I, I, I know that the way that anxiety was treated for a long time and still is, is through medication and benzodiazepines or, or what you will. Can you talk about how medicine plays a role in some of this and, and whether you think it's been helpful, unhelpful? You know, what goes into all of that stuff? Yes. So it's funny. I don't know if you remember this song, the Stones song, um, Mother's Little Helper. Okay. Not very familiar, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. She goes, I won't sing it, but the line is something like she goes running to the shelter of Mother's Little Helper and it Mm. helps her on her way. It helps her through her busy day or whatever. So the Stones were singing about benzos, benzodiazepines, because they were prescribed like candy in the 70s. And then people started to realize, maybe that's not such a good idea. These things are addictive. They can be dangerous. You know, you can overdose, all these things. And so in the 80s, uh, folks were heralding the miracle of this new class of medications called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs, like Prozac was the first one. Yet at this time, if you look at the medications, gold standard treatment, like these SSRIs for anxiety, they have what's called a number needed to treat of 5.15, meaning... I have to treat over five patients with this class of medications before one of them shows a significant benefit or Mm. significant reduction in symptoms. So I'm basically playing the medication lottery uh, with my patients when I'm prescribing these. Not to say that I don't do it or it can't be helpful. For some people, these are very, very helpful medications. Yet back in the 80s, this was at the same time that folks like, there's this guy, Thomas Borkovec at Penn State, that they were studying anxiety. And they were actually suggesting that anxiety could be perpetuated in a habitual manner. Like it could be negatively reinforced just like any other fear-based learning. And I didn't learn this in medical school because I was learning about medications. I didn't learn this in residency. But when I was getting anxious about treating my own patients with anxiety, uh, I started looking at the literature and I found this literature, you know, 30 years ago. And I had this light bulb moment. I was thinking, oh, can we address anxiety in the same way that I've been approaching other habits because we done work with smoking, got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We did work with eating, help people reduce craving related eating. So we knew how to help people change habits, but could we actually apply this to anxiety? And mm. the, the one liner on that is yes. <laughs> and I can tell you about some of the studies we've done if helpful. Yeah, no, and I wanna to get to that in just a moment, but just to wrap up th- this question of the medications, it sounds like it's one that has been that's had very mixed results. And, and just so our listeners know, I mean, the benzodiazepines, these are things like Xanax, Klonopin, Ativan, very widely prescribed. And what we're seeing now is uh, our crazy addiction rates to these things. I mean, there's almost been an epidemic in a sense of how we've gone about prescribing these. Would you agree with that? Yes, they're actually not recommended as first-line treatment. If you mm. look at the uh, national NICE criteria in the UK, this is National Center for Excellence or something, and right. they do not recommend rec- benzodiazepines as first-line treatment. Well, let's jump into, I know, some of the research you've been doing um, surrounding habits and, and some of the clinical studies you've been doing. Um, where did your research go after, after looking at kind of a different paradigm of treating anxiety? 
so that you know, as a researcher, I wanted to figure out how we could study this in a very clean manner because it's hard to study psychotherapy. It's hard to study different things. And as a clinician, I wanted to study something that could be uh, scalable. You know, if it worked, I don't want this to be, you know, stay in the ivory towers of the research institutions. So my lab had been working with digital therapeutics, basically a fancy term for app-based mindfulness training since, geez, 2011, Mm -hmm. 2012, when we started thinking about how we could kind of package my clinic and deliver it in context because people learn habits in context. They don't learn to smoke in my office. So could I actually deliver my office to them? So we've been getting good results. We had this app called Craving to Quit. And these are apps that anybody can download. This is Craving to Quit app where we actually found that we could change brain mechanisms. And these changed brain mechanisms with this mindfulness training could predict clinical outcomes. Whereas we used a control app, the National Cancer Institute's Quit Guide. It didn't show those changes. We even studied, uh, this was a study led by Ashley Mason at UCSF. There's an app called Eat Right Now where she found a 40% reduction in craving-related eating in helping people bring awareness to their situations. So we developed an app, you know, the same name as the book called Unwinding Anxiety. And we looked specifically to see if we could start training people to understand how their minds worked first, and then help them work with their minds and tap into the same reward-based learning process that sets up worry and anxiety as a habit loop in the first place. Mm. So, uh, okay, how, how does the mind work? This seems like a pretty big question. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, so I'll give you the basics in terms of how habits form, right? It's a trigger, a behavior, and a result. Mm. Uh, and anybody can actually map this out. We've put together a, a free downloadable PDF on mapmyhabit.com where anybody can do this, where basically you take a trigger and you, or you take your behavior. Let's say with anxiety, the, the behaviors tend to tend to be worry, they tend to be procrastination, they tend to be stress eating, uh, distraction where somebody will binge on Netflix or go in, you know, go on, on their social media for a long time. So we start with the behavior and just ask, what's the behavior? It could be physical, like eating, or it could be mental, like worrying. Mm-hmm. And then we can trace that back. What was the trigger? And it's often, you know, it's a thought, it's a physical sensation. So for example, my patients with generalized anxiety disorder, they wake up in the morning and they feel anxious. So there's the trigger. And then they start worrying. Oh no, why am I anxious? Or am I going to be anxious all day? Ironically, as they worry, it feeds back and makes them more anxious because they can't, you know, their brain's trying to solve a problem that they can't solve because they don't know why they're anxious. And so often they go into these rabbit holes of, you know, why am I anxious? And that just drives the whole process. Mm. Often the other thing that I see a lot is that worry makes people feel like they're in control or they're at least doing something. So for example, a parent whose kid just got their driver's license and they go out, you know, with their friends on the weekend you know, it's, it's late at night, the parent is stays up late worrying. Sure. And their brain's thinking, well, I can't keep them safe, but at least I can do something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're actually feeding that anxiety habit loop so that the more they think about their kid getting, you know, in an accident, the more they start to worry, and the more that just feeds and drives more anxiety. All right. So is part of this... It, it, understanding the loop and understanding what what the initial trigger is is that where you start yes that's where i start yeah i'll give a a concrete example please write a write about a patient of mine in the book Uh, the chapter is about dave Uh, and there are actually a couple of chapters where he kind of goes through his process of mapping out his own mind so this guy was referred to me he's about 40 years of age he was referred to me for anxiety 
And when he came into my office, he started talking about how he'd get panic attacks uh, related to driving. So I pulled out a piece of paper. I just wrote down trigger behavior result on the piece of paper. And I said, okay, what are your triggers? He said, these thoughts, like, I feel like I'm going to be, I'm in a speeding bullet. I think that's what he said. So there's the trigger. His behavior was that first he would panic and then he would avoid driving on the highway. And that behavior helped him avoid having those anxious thoughts. So it would feed back and prevent those anxious thoughts from coming up. So we just mapped that out as, as the first step. And I actually, I gave him our unwinding anxiety app and I sent him home and I said, just start mapping out all your habit loops around anxiety. How did this, how did this work for him? I mean, what, what did you see? Well, I didn't mention that he was also very overweight. He was about 180 pounds overweight. So he came back for his first follow-up visit two weeks later. And the first thing he said to me was, hey, doc, I lost 14 pounds. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. And, and I said, what? Because we hadn't even talked about weight loss yet. Uh, you know, we were going to focus on anxiety. And he said, well, anxiety is triggering me to stress eat as the behavior. And that stress eating wasn't actually fixing my anxiety. And it was making me feel worse because I know I need to lose weight. So I stopped doing it. You know, this gentleman went on to lose over 100 pounds. But the point here was that this is actually the second step in the process. The first step is mapping these habit loops out. The second step is really seeing how rewarding they are for our brains. This is different than trying to force ourselves not to worry. This is really just asking ourselves, hmm, is this worry solving the problem? Is it keeping my family safe? Is it doing what my brain thinks it's supposed to be doing? And the general answer with worry is no. It's only making my thinking brain go offline. So I can't think, right? So as we start to map this out, or stress eating in the case of Dave, uh, our brain starts to become disenchanted with the old behavior. My labs actually studied this with eating. So with this Eat Right Now app, we could actually watch this reward value drop and it only takes 10 to 15 times of people really paying attention to see what they're getting in this case from overeating uh, that that overeating val reward value drops and then they shift into not overeating hmm. uh, so this can be the case with smoking we've also studied that but this can also be the case with worrying you know is my worrying actually helping and as our brains start to see, oh, it's not actually helping, it's just making me more anxious, then we can get to this third step. And I highlight a bunch of ways to do this in, in my Unwinding Anxiety book, uh, which is what I call the find that BBO, the bigger, better offer. So when we're all caught up in anxiety, can we bring something in that helps us open up? And this is where I love you know, curiosity and kindness as two main things that we can do to help us uh, both unwind that anxiety, but also start to open up so that we can move into our growth zone. So we can actually learn about our minds and learn how to change the behaviors. Mm. So if you were to use um, the patient as the example, it's it's a fear of driving something, you know, the, the speeding bullets or however you put it. Let's say you start right there is the first step to kind of say, this is a trigger. And let me let me begin to question, question this anxiety, see where it's going to go, understand where it may take me. I mean, walk us through that first step there of what would happen sure so in this case you know just write and sometimes it's helpful just to write this down on a piece of paper right you know what are my typical triggers are they thoughts are they body sensations are they environmental cues and then what's my typical behavior i like to have people start with one you know one main habit loop that they're struggling with so let's say worry as a habit loop so then they just write down worry i'm worrying 
And then I have them really examine what the result is. What are they getting from this? So that's the third piece because that result, if it's rewarding, it's going to feed back and drive more, you know, more of that habit loop. Mm. So that's the first step. And the second step, as they examine, you know, what's that cause and effect relationship? What's the behavior and what's the result of that, re- of that behavior? If they see that the behavior isn't serving them, then their brains will start to become disenchanted. So simple question I have people ask themselves is, what am I getting from this? Mm-hmm. What am I getting from this? Interesting. Last week on the program, we talked a lot about the role the role of genetics in, in certain mental illnesses. Do you think there are any genetic underpinnings here for people that are certain that are predisposed to developing major symptoms of panic, major symptoms of anxiety? What, what are your thoughts on that? The, the short answer is yes. You know, I think genetics play a, a large role and and we're we, we see this more and more in everyday life. You know, there's there are genetic contributions, there are epigenetic contributions. Right. Uh, so, so yes, genes affect all of us. Uh, and right now, we don't really have control over our genes. Uh, we might start to get more control over how they're expressed in the future. So, the genetics affect all of us. Yet we can't. There's not really anything we can do right now. Maybe tailor a medication here or there, but we're, we're not. That's not prime time yet. One thing I like to think about is, okay, we don't have control over our genes, but we do have control over our minds. If we can learn about our minds, anybody can learn from that process and help themselves regardless of whether they've won the genetic lottery or not. Yeah. Well, let's go into a few more ideas. You have solution base for people that are struggling with this on a day-to-day level. What what are some other tools you can give them for starting to kind of settle some of this anxiety? There are a couple of, so general categories uh, are curiosity and kindness, right? Mm. Where these things can help us open up. But to give a concrete example, and I I write about how the the neuroscience of this works in in my Unwinding Anxiety book, uh, there's this technique called five finger breathing, uh, where somebody can take the index finger of one hand and place it at the base of the outside base of their pinky on the other hand. And as they breathe in, they can trace up the outside of their pinky, just doing this right now myself, Mm -hmm. and then pause at the top. And then as they breathe out, they can trace down the inside. And then, you know, as they breathe, they can, you know, five breaths, they can trace from their pinky to their thumb, they can trace back from their thumb to their pinky. So I like that practice as a way just to help somebody ground in the present moment, because, you know, our brains can't hold a lot of information at once. In, in our working memory, and you know, it's you know, not more than about four items, let's say. Well, we can actually force our brains to pay attention to four things. We're we're paying attention to the felt sensation on two different fingers, plus the felt sensation of our breathing, plus looking at our hand. So that's four things. And what that does is it can force our our dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, this working memory part of our brain, to reboot. And as it reboots, it kind of uh, throws out any worry thoughts that we have. Have. And when those worry thoughts come back online, our physiology tends to be calmed down a bit because we've taken five or 10 breaths where we've really paid attention. And then there's this mismatch. When those thoughts come back in, they're at a higher arousal level than our feeling. And our feeling body is much stronger than our thinking brain, as much mm-hmm. as we'd like to think otherwise. And so we can start to see those thoughts as thoughts and just more easily notice them and let them go. 
if if our physiology were at that level of of arousal, you know, our thought would say, "I'm anxious," and our body would say, "Yeah, you're right. We are anxious." And then they start going off on each other. Yeah, that's a beautiful exercise. I was kind of doing it as as you were speaking as well. There's something very calming about it. And mm-hmm. you also use the word kindness. What? How does that factor into this conversation? Well, often there, and I see this a lot in my clinic, we'll beat ourselves up, we'll judge ourselves, you know, and it could even be for being anxious, like, oh, why am I worried? Why am I a worried person? You know, all these things. And here, when we judge ourselves, or we beat ourselves up, you know, it's something to do for our brain, but it actually makes us feel closed and contracted and can actually just drive more habit loops of self judgment. So here we can bring in the antidote of kindness, you know, What's it feel like to be kind to ourselves instead of beating ourselves up? And here it opens us up and also helps us step out of the old habit of self-judgment or, or self-deprecation you know, or whatever. Yeah. One thing you read about in your book was a, a very stressful period of your life of waking up with, with panic attacks in the middle of the night. Uh, this is something you hear from a lot of people, and they may not be full-on panic attacks, but, but just waking up with running uh, anxious thoughts. Uh, can't quite seem to slow them down. What what do you do in the middle of the night when this stuff creeps up on you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, full-blown panic attacks are like trying to surf a huge wave that we have no business surfing. (laughs) So here I say, if somebody has a panic attack, just, you know, let it rip. Let it go. (laughs) Don't try to do anything about it right in that moment. But we can look at it afterwards and ask ourselves, okay, what happened there? And then we can start to work with smaller, you know, smaller moments of panic. And specifically, what I had started training myself to do, and this was 10 years before I had my first big panic attack, was to just simply note thoughts and note emotions and note body sensations when they came up. So when I would wake up with a full-blown panic attack, I was kind of in the habit of doing this noting practice. And so I would wake up, have a panic attack, and during the during the attack, I could note it. Oh, there's, I'm feeling like I'm going to die. Oh, right. I can't breathe. Oh, my heart is racing. And then afterwards, I could just remind, you know, because my brain would be like, oh, those are things that are happening. Now it's over. And then since I was in residency training, I'd go through the checklist for and say, oh, check, check, check. Oh, I just had a panic attack. Right. And then I could let it go because I saw these things as thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. So I'd been training myself to surf these things. And I didn't even know the big wave was coming. But I was ready for it. You know, this is 10 years of practice. Uh, The good news is people don't have to practice for 10 years to do this. This is why I wrote the book is that people can actually, you know, use these tools and start to utilize them and learn how to work with anxiety and then even full-blown panic as they learn how to work with their minds. Mm. I've heard that you at this point in your life or you've developed this over the last decade decade or so have a fairly strong meditation practice uh, it's something that that you really believe in is that still still present with you yes for my brain it is the biggest bestest offer i've ever had mm, really <laughs> you know yeah. yeah just learning how my own mind works helps me personally it helps my interpersonal relationships you can ask my wife we have you yeah. know, when i'm aware uh, and noticing my old habit my bad habits we, we have a much better relationship it helps me professionally i can help my patients more where i can you know there's this saying in psychiatry don't just sit uh, don't there's this old saying don't just sit there do something right in psychiatry we flip that don't just do something sit there as in you know don't try to go jump in and fix your patient sit there and deeply listen so you can see what the actual issue is before you actually offer some something so Mm. i've seen this help me tremendously and i have to say 
the biggest personal joy of my life is discovering or reawakening or fostering my own curiosity. You know, it is, oh, it is delicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, of course. Do you, do you meditate daily, morning, nighttime? What, what's your schedule? Yes, often my wife and I will meditate together in the morning. Mm -hmm. But one thing I've found, and my research has actually suggested this as well, is that these, I call this short moments many times. So the way to create a new habit is to do it, you know, do that behavior short moments many times throughout the day. And so here, throughout the day, I'll just try to see if I can check to, check in with myself to see, oh, am I feeling closed or contracted? And what led to that? Oh, am I feeling open, expanded? What led to that? So I can actually tap into my brain's reward system and, you know, help my brain will naturally start to let go of the things that lead to feeling contracted and move toward the things that feel open and expanded. So, you know, moment by moment, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm strengthening my own mindfulness practice every day throughout the day without having to do some formal meditation. Yeah, is it, it's interesting just because uh, for a while I think there was this idea of, oh, see if you can get in 20 minutes in the morning, but but this kind of paradigm you're talking about is can you get three minutes maybe six times throughout the day um which, which is kind of appealing and does make sense to me yeah or 30 times of three seconds mm. you know so the idea is the more and we've seen this you know it's like my patients who have a urge to smoke you know and they're in their car they can't pull over and pull their meditation cushion out of the trunk and meditate on the side of the highway in that moment that they have a craving, that's when they've got to work with it. So when something comes up, that's a great opportunity of instead of running away from it, turning toward it. You know, you might have heard the phrase, the only way out is through. Sure. Well, through exploring our own situations, we can actually learn to unwind these old habits. Mm. It's just funny to me how, right, learning to be present and mindful is, is uh, runs throughout almost all the great religious and spiritual traditions. It's been with us for so long, and yet it is still the hardest thing that we do every day. It's kind of amazing, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yes, and it doesn't have to be hard, right? Mm. We can approach this with kindness and curiosity. I mean, if we're just, if we're interested in understanding how our own minds work, you know, the sky's the limit. Why, why ever stop? Right. And then it naturally draws us in. You know, curiosity draws us in. It's not like a forced march. Right. Lastly, on the practical side of things, um, just as, as we are so bombarded by screens and images and messages, uh, how do you think this stuff factors into this anxious culture that we live in? And should we start to remove these things? Well, I would say good luck removing that. Yeah. Yeah, sure. uh, so it, it, technology is not the issue here. It's not the problem. It's really how we interact with technology. And if we don't know how technology works, then the folks that are designing technology to become increasingly addictive will, quote unquote, win, right? They'll, they'll capture our attention more and more. Yet, if we understand how the process works, and it's a pretty simple process, you know, trigger behavior result, we can learn to work with technology no matter what. You know, it's not like social media is evil. Uh, you know, it's helpful. I have to go on Twitter for work. Yeah. And, but I, if I find myself constantly scrolling on my Twitter feed, I can't, I'm not getting my other work done. So if I can see you know, where's that balance, simply through seeing you know, where's that pleasure plateau, where is it you know, no longer yielding rewards and actually leading to negative results, then my brain will naturally start to dial back and find that sweet spot of, okay, this, this is enough. It's just like food. It's like our body knows, oh, this is enough. 
And all of this comes from awareness, bringing awareness in. Oh, I'm full. Well, we can also notice, oh, I, you know, I'm, I've done my, I've, I've filled up on my social media for the moment and I'm now just mindlessly scrolling. Mm -hmm. That makes it much easier to let go and, and step off for a bit. Dr. Judd Brewer is an associate professor at Brown University and executive medical director at ShareCare. His latest book is titled Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. Thanks for having me. Still to come, zapping the brain with electricity. Our next guest says in the future, electric stimulation to the brain could be the answer for treating mental disorders from, yes, anxiety, to also depression and Alzheimer's. And just a reminder that if you missed any of our shows, head on over to iTunes for the full library. There you can find last week's popular episode on how genetics could be a key in treating. You're listening to Life Examines on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Dr. Judd Brewer, associate professor at Brown University, say we can train our brains using mindfulness to break free from the anxiety loop. But what if we could improve brain function literally with a push of a button? Today, technology has allowed scientists and researchers to view brain activity in real time. And one thing that's becoming more and more apparent is the importance of balanced electrical flow between different regions of the brain. And when this flow is altered and regions go dark, it can result in psychiatric disorders. So could electronic stimulation to the brain help treat this? What would this mean in the future for those with a debilitating disorders like Alzheimer's, depression, or even Parkinson's? Shrey Grover is a doctoral student in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences in the Reinhard Cognitive and Clinical Neuroscience Laboratory at Boston University. He explains the process and the promising growth potential of non-invasive neurostimulation. Shrey Grover, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me. Well, when I was reading about all the work you're doing, I came across this line, which I thought is a beautiful reminder and education on how the brain works. It said, the brain is an electrical organ. I was wondering if you could explain what that, what that means. Sure. So our brain is composed of, of, of billions of cells, which we call neurons. And neurons are typically what we call electrochemical in nature. That means that in order to communicate among themselves, in order to send a signal from one neuron to another, neurons leverage electrical activity. Essentially, neurons try to send these bursts of electrical activity, which we call action potentials, through their body. And once they reach the other neuron, the other neuron knows that the previous neuron has sent something. Mm. There might be some information that the neuron is sending, which might be useful for the subsequent neuron. So all of this processing happens in, in an electrical format. And that means that if we were to attach electrodes on someone's scalp, we can actually measure deflections in voltages, which gives us a sense that there's actually some form of electricity that's flowing from one end to the other end or from between two regions or between two networks. So brain is 
typically an electrical organ because it employs these electrical signals to communicate among the different populations of neurons that that inhabit the brain. Oh, interesting. Okay, so so then when you begin to look at the workings of a very depressed brain, somebody who has major depressive disorder, something uh, that's very debilitating for a person, how, how does this question of electricity show up on your scans or your imaging? What does that look like? There's a lot of information that can be garnered from the patterns of electrical activity. We typically, there are different ways in which electrical activity can be measured. One of the more common techniques is what we call electroencephalography, uh, or EEG for short, uh, which is which involves application of electrodes on the scalp. Mm. And through these electrodes, we measure these patterns of electrical activity. They're essentially, they're like traces or waveforms, which can we can see on our screen, which show deflections of voltage across time over different sites on the person's head, on the person's scalp. And under situations, if we have someone who may be experiencing uh, depression, or if we have a uh, an individual who might be undergoing some form of uh, some some clinical condition, there are certain characteristic activity patterns, or rather, lack of activity patterns, which mm. might be evident. So, if someone is experiencing difficulties with attention, they are unable to pay attention properly. In those situations, there might be certain characteristic activity patterns missing on the screen. Those. Uh, they're not typically visible on the screen directly. We have to do a bit of sort of, uh, you know, analytical processing on the data to be mm. able to see those things. Uh, but but essentially, there are certain characteristic activity patterns which either may be missing altogether or they might be present in a rather abnormal format. Uh, Typically, it's it's most prevalent in individuals who might experience sleep disorders. Mm. Uh, in in the field of sleep research, such differences in electrical activity patterns have been heavily documented, and they've been related to different kinds of sleep-related conditions. So it's essentially anything that appears atypical, something that is not evident in a broad sample of individuals, uh, and something that seems to correlate or seem to be associated with the symptoms that an individual might be experiencing gives us an idea of what exactly might be going wrong with the with those electrical activity patterns. Right. So historically, the, the treatment for, for mental disorders um, were, were some type of therapy, could be talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, or medication, SSRIs, or a variety of others. I want you now to talk about how you see neuromodulation or some type of electrical stimulation as the next phase of treatment for some of these disorders. Both medication and psychotherapy have been considerably successful in in treating many different mental health conditions and in many ways they remain the first line of treatment currently. The difficulty is that they may not be equally effective for everyone uh, given the heterogeneity of symptoms Take if you even if you take any one single mental health condition uh, and at the same time Particularly with regard to medications, they, they can sometimes uh, be accompanied by significant risks and side effects. Yeah. So to mitigate that, there has been a greater push to recognize alternative treatment approaches that are rooted in the neurophysiology uh, of a given uh, neuropsychiatric condition. Uh, 
And it's in that spirit where the field of neuromodulation grew up. Previously, we've been employing neuromodulation for a while uh, in many uh, conditions such as Parkinson's disease or obsessive compulsive disorder for treatment resistant cases, severe cases, people have been using deep brain stimulation for a while now in which uh, electrodes can be implanted into areas of the brain which we think are contributing to the symptoms of a disease and we apply electrical currents to those areas to change the activity patterns or to compensate for the loss of activity in those regions and that improves symptoms. Hmm. Uh, and we've been using these these invasive uh, neuromodulation techniques for a while. Uh, but more recently, we've been looking into non-invasive forms of neuromodulation, which means those neuromodulation techniques that can be used without the need for surgery. And in this line of work, we've had various different kinds of techniques that have come up. One of the earliest techniques being transcranial magnetic stimulation, which actually got developed in the 1980s. And more recently, we've been uh, examining transcranial electrical stimulation as another technique, which is the one that we, we study in our lab here at Boston University. Uh, so these techniques are coming up, and many of these techniques are showing promise uh, in, in helping individuals with different kinds of neuropsychiatric conditions. Now, these techniques are very much in their infancy, and we expect that a lot more research would be needed as we go forward to uh, to see whether they actually hold clinical benefit, whether they, they hold promise for clinical benefit, and when they can be available in the market or at the clinician for, uh, for mitigating uh, symptoms of a given disease. That might still take a while because this field is still very much in its infancy. Yeah. So back to our initial question here, you know, or, or idea that, that the brain is an electrical organ. Talk about how this type of stimulation works. I mean, what does it look like? And then when you go in and see the impacts, how does it actually work? The mechanisms uh, can be different for different neuromodulation techniques. Uh, the ones that we use in the lab are transcranial electrical stimulation, which also have different subtypes. So I'll first talk about uh, one of the more recent subtypes that we've been using, which is called transcranial alternating current stimulation. Uh, if I break down that term, what that means is, uh, the first word is transcranial, which means across the skull. And the second word, the second and third words are alternating current. Mm. So what we do here is that on the scalp, on a participant's scalp, we place certain electrodes. These electrodes are connected to a regular 9-volt battery. And through that battery and through the systems that we use, we apply very weak alternating currents to the participant's scalp. Now, these are very, very weak currents, typically of the order of about you know, two microamperes, uh, two milliamps, I'm sorry, two milliamperes. And they're not generally that strong. You might experience slight itching or tingling sensation on the scalp when you're receiving this current. And this current is typically applied for about 20 to 30 minutes uh, uh, on a given day. And what happens here is that we position the electrodes in such a way that the currents can target an underlying brain region. The currents travel from your scalp into the brain region and the neurons that were sitting there in that region, they are affected by the currents that we are applying. More specifically, 
the neurons, they start firing according to the electrical activity that we are applying. So neurons, we are able to change the act activity pattern of the neurons. We are able to change the timings at which neurons are firing. We are able to change the overall uh, excitability of neurons. That is just how likely a neuron is to fire or to send that electrical pulse, which allows it to send some information to the next neuron. So we change the ability of the neurons or the way the neurons are, are firing. We are able to control that using these externally applied currents. And in, in any given uh, say in a clinical condition, if we have identified that perhaps two brain regions are not communicating with each other optimally, in those cases, we can entrain the activity of those brain regions. We can synchronize the activity of those brain regions by applying electrical currents on both of those brain regions in a very precise, controlled manner. Uh, all of these things are very much in their investigational stages, which is why they are conducted under supervision of trained individuals in a laboratory setting. These are not uh, uh, techniques that we would recommend being used outside of the lab at any point. Mm. But typically in a, in, in, an, in, a, in a laboratory setting, the experimenters know what might be the best way in which two different brain regions need to communicate with each other. And we try to mimic those activity patterns using these electrical stimulation techniques. And once we do that, uh, our brains are plastic. We know that our brains have an incredible ability to rewire themselves, to, uh, to change over time. So we nudge the brain using these electrical currents to let go of its, of its usual state of being in a way and to adapt to this new form of, 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 of synchronization that we are trying to impose based on these external currents. And it helps the brain to get out of its rut and uh, become uh, more suitable to process information in the most optimum way and that can help mitigate some of the uh, symptoms that we may that someone may experience uh, due to a given neuropsychiatric condition so uh, which is this is really fascinating stuff so it's essentially you're almost turning on or reconnecting parts of, of the brain here um, how long do the effects last? I mean, once you turn the machine off, uh, does the brain then kind of go run with this new way of operating, or does do the you know do the effects start to wear off over time? Now, that's uh, that's that is an active area of research. In fact, we are trying to identify what might be the factors which can increase the duration for which effects last. Uh, Typically, most studies that employ such techniques, uh, they rarely measure the effects very much forward in the future. But in one of our recent work, we examined the effects of, of, of transcranial alternating current stimulation on obsessive compulsive behavior, uh, in which we applied this stimulation on participants' heads for, uh, for five days. 30 minutes each day. Mm. And we then measured their obsessive compulsive symptoms over the next three months. And we found rapid and sustainable effects in obsessive compulsive symptoms over the next three months. So typically, we, we, we expect that we might be able to, uh, to observe 
uh, long-lasting effects of this technique, using this technique, uh, but just how long the effects would last is something which is still an active area of investigation. We've talked a little bit about depression, anxiety, OCD, but uh, another part of the brain that you're looking at is the aging brain. Someone with Alzheimer's or maybe dementia, memory loss. How do you think this type of therapy could could help someone with one of those conditions? So in our research, what we've identified is that in, in, in our research, we were focused on memory operations and how they get affected uh, with age. Uh, and this is, of course, of extreme relevance to dementia as well as to Alzheimer's disease and other forms of uh, dementia. Um, what we've noticed is that in order to maintain information in memory, we need to have coordinated activity among multiple brain regions. That is, different brain regions need to communicate with each other with very precise timings to ensure that information can be transmitted back and forth between them. What we find is that as we age, that ability to coordinate uh, communication among different brain regions deteriorates. And that deterioration may be related to or may be causing uh, the impairments in memory that we observe with aging generally and particularly with uh, in, in dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Now, what we've done in our previous research is that we've used these neuromodulation tools and targeted multiple brain areas simultaneously and in, in a very precisely controlled manner, we have synchronized different brain regions to make sure that those brain regions can communicate with each other optimally. And when we do that, we are able to improve the memory abilities of elderly individuals and bring them to levels that are almost indistinguishable relative to young individuals. Uh, we are currently expanding on that line of work and seeing how we can get more robust effects and whether we can improve our neuromodulation designs so that we can improve, we can uh, observe long-lasting effects. Mm. Uh, and all of that work is currently undergoing in our lab as well as in other labs which are seeking to uh, examine how electrical patterns of activity are related to uh, Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Mm, interesting. Well, I wonder, are there other ways that you can neurostimulate our brains? A lot of people are looking at things like meditation, mindfulness practices, things like that. I mean, do any of those come close to the results that you're seeing through the therapy you're mm -hmm. talking about? So the benefit with uh, the therapies that we typically work with is that they provide us a lot of control mm. onto the specific brain processes that we are manipulating. Uh, a process like meditation or even, you know, lifestyle changes in the form of exercise uh, or diet, they of course have immense impacts on the brain. Uh, but when it comes to specific symptoms of a disease, uh, we want to identify the specific patterns of brain activity that are problematic. Mm. So we want to have a very focal control on the brain processes that we are targeting. And that kind of a focal control is typically available in the kinds of neuromodulation technologies that we use. Uh, 
it may be evident even in you know even through uh, interventions like meditation and lifestyle changes uh, but we expect that the control might be less precise meditation is going to affect lots and lots of different brain processes uh, other than the one that is contributing to the symptoms um, so we we our hope is to use these new neuromodulation technologies and be inspired by what we learn uh, from basic neuroscience and target things in a very functionally specific way. We've been speaking with Shrey Grover, a doctoral student in the Department of Psychology and Brain Sciences in Robert Reinhardt Cognitive and Clinical Neuroscience Laboratory. This is at Boston University. Thank you so much for this, uh, this, this conversation and for sharing your research with us. We appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to discuss. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastion at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastion. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.